The edition is sponsored by Crux, one of the world's leading boutique asset management firms specializing in Asian, European and UK investments. We invest for the long term and our dedicated team of investment professionals have decades of fund management experience between them. Visit cruxam.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. This week, is there any substance to the government's new drugs agenda? Plus, can Islam save Britain's churches? And finally, are we witnessing the twilight of the necktie? First up, in The Spectator this week, Fraser Nelson writes the cover story on the government's new 10 years drugs plan and finds that while on the surface it seems like a new war on drugs, it might actually have some thoughtful and effective policies buried within it. Fraser joins me now along with Christopher Snowden, the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Fraser, in your cover piece this week, you look at the government's new war on drugs. Why do you think they've launched all these policies this week? Well, this was always going to be crime week, where the government was going to announce something it's been thinking about for quite some time. It was um, Theresa May who asked um, Dame Carol Black, a, a Cambridge academic, to oversee a huge review about what's gone wrong with Brit- Britain's drug policy. That review is one of the most impressive documents I've ever read coming out from a government, written incredibly clearly, and it exposed the many, many ways in which Britain has become Europe's drugs hotspot, with um, you know, people, more people dying in the street from drugs overdoses than ever before. She was incredibly frank about the failures of policing, the failure of border force, the emergence of county lines, drugs networks supplying the drugs, and the way this was distorting uh, the lives of those affected, and the way it was getting far, far worse. Now, that report, there were two parts to it. First of all, the problem, then her solutions, and then the government was going to respond. Now, typically, when you get a report that good, and they don't come along very often. The government then dodges its conclusions because it, it doesn't want to confront the truth. With this time, they've accepted almost all of her conclusions. I suspect they haven't given, spent as much money as she said it was needed to be spent because the, the, the report is unclear on the amount of money. There's some smoke and mirrors being used there. But this is an incredibly serious document. I actually started off this article already to attack it, because I'd seen um, Boris Johnson go on dressed up as a policeman going on a dawn raid and going on about middle-class cocaine users. And I thought to myself, like, firstly, this kind of stunt suggests fundamentally unserious about this. And secondly, the middle-class coke users, the Michael Goves of this world, are not really the problem that we're talking about here. The problem is what's happening to the, the council estates. And I was at one in Loughborough a few weeks ago, where I went up there. I don't often get the chance to do this as an editor, but I wanted to go and see for myself just how drugs were distorting the lives of communities. And that really made quite a big effect to me. What I saw in Loughborough was as bad, if not worse, than anything I saw in the east of Glasgow when I was reporting about poverty up there. And that's drugs that's done this to this country. It's got a lot worse. Cocaine has quadrupled in the last 10 years. And the government, despite Boris's superficiality, has come out with a programme which properly recognises what's going wrong, the importance of rehabilitation, the importance of looking at families, not just individual drug takers, and the need to spend significant amounts of money repairing the damage, the Tory-inflicted damage, of the last 10 years. 
Christopher, one of the points that Fraser makes in his piece is that drugs policy has been a major Tory failure and it's something that the party has struggled to come to terms with. Would you agree with that? Uh, Yeah, to a point. I mean, it's also been a a big SNP failure in Scotland and a big Labour failure in in Wales. It's not just the Tories. I mean, there are, broadly speaking, two ways of dealing with drugs from a a policy point of view. One is the war on drugs um, and really, you know, having a big crackdown and sending people to prison for longer or more often. And the other is the what's called the public health approach. And with this strategy, it seems to me that the government is pretending to do a war on drugs and is actually doing more of a public health approach to it. Um, and so I, I totally agree with Fraser about this kind of distraction, really, of the middle class drug user and nonsense about having sniffer dogs in Sloan Square and all this stuff. I mean, middle I'm not defending middle class druggies per se, but it isn't really that big a problem. I mean, if you are wealthy, if you live in Sloan Square, then you can take drugs at the weekend. It's very unlikely that you're going to come to any serious problem. You've got the the money if you need it. Your parents will put you in the priory if you get addicted. The the problem is more in places like uh, Fraser's talking about in on, on council estates, where if you're young um, and pretty poor and you get addicted to crystal meth or crack cocaine or heroin or so on, you you, you could potentially be in a lot of trouble. The only problem really with the public health approach, which is consistent, by the way, with legalisation and decriminalisation and indeed total criminalisation, is it tends to overlook recreational drug users, including a lot of these middle class drug users. And it kind of assumes that all drug use per se is a health problem or a psychological problem. And it just isn't, you know, and the reality is that a lot of drug use actually is fairly non-problematic, temporary, and recreational and that side of the picture never gets a look in but with those caveats i would say that i think the money certainly is welcome for rehab and drug treatment a lot of that money has been eking away over the course of the last 10 years because the responsibility for public health went to local councils their budgets were cut and the local councils decided they were going to spend money on obesity and well-being programs rather than on drug treatment programs. So this money, and Fraser's quite right, it's quite hard to work out exactly how much money we're talking about per year for the next 10 years. This money certainly is, is welcome and it's a step in the right direction to focus more on helping people who want to be helped than fighting a, a failing war on drugs. Fraser, you make the point in your piece that poverty has fallen over the last decade, thanks in large part to Cameron's welfare reforms, but that drug abuse hasn't, and in fact, is obviously getting worse. I mean, why, why do you think that is? What's driving that? I think it's a very important point. I mean, it, it can sometimes be glibly assumed that drug abuse is simply a function of poverty. Because when you go to the communities most affected by it, there's no doubt that these are some of the most deprived places you'll ever see. So you might think, well, let's just get the economy going, let's get employment up, let's get um, more people in work than ever before. That's what Cameron had. And therefore, all the other problems will melt away. Now, that's true for quite a lot of issues, but it isn't true for drugs. The reason people get involved in drugs is something quite different. I'm a great admirer of um, the work of Angus Deaton, who's a Scottish economist who now is at Yale University. He won the Nobel Prize for Economics recently. And he wrote this really important book a couple of years ago called Deaths of Despair, where he highlighted this kind of paradox that that deaths from cancer, heart disease have been going down quite a lot over the last few decades. But deaths from liver disease, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, and in America, suicide have been going up. 
he put this down to a social decay, usually amongst the um, sort of people and the sort of parts of the world that have done pretty badly from globalization. Typically, the demographic you're looking at is um, men in their sort of 40s or 50s. Professor Deaton goes a lot further than academics would in Britain because he talks about family breakdown and lack of religion. He tries to really sort of search for why life has gone so wrong for these people. In Britain, we're only beginning to start asking the same questions. Why is life going so wrong for them? It's not lack of money. When you go to Loughborough or the east of Glasgow, you will come across some of the most expensive poverty in the world. The amount of money being spent trying to make these people better is staggering and it's not working. And that's because what they need is help and support. I was um, really struck and moved by the, the charity workers I met up there in Loughborough who are helping some incredibly hard-to-reach people and persuading them to, to basically abstain, to give it up, to um, you, to go and live in a residential care home where you can try to be with other people trying to kick your habit. But to do that means you have to look at the person. You don't look at a drug problem, you don't look at a drink problem in isolation, you don't look at a welfare problem, you don't look at a housing problem, you look at the person. Now for that it requires a very, very different approach to seeing these problems for what they are, which is symptoms of a wider malaise. And the wider malaise is of a despair that Angus Deaton talks about. And I think this document comes close to really getting to the heart of what is causing the poverty in a country, sort of a drug, drug deprivation and the alcohol deprivation, in a country where poverty is going down and wealth is going up. Christopher, Britain seems to be getting a fair few things wrong. Are there other countries that you think we should look towards who, is, who have better drug policies? Well, on cannabis, a growing number of countries and and, uh, a very large number of states in America, because I think the the policy with cannabis, for sure, should be to legalise it. Um, You don't really get deaths from cannabis. And I would say that not all the deaths from drugs are necessarily deaths of despair, as it were. I mean, um, a lot of the cocaine-related deaths, which have gone up very significantly over the course of the last 10 years or so, a lot of these are kind of middle-aged Generation Xs who just going too hard on it and 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 dying it's not despair per se and with a lot of the other drugs including heroin we're often dealing with adulteration of the product that it's stronger than perhaps is expected so these are very largely the results of the prohibition in the first place and of course this is one of the issues you get with prohibitions people don't know what they're they're buying so a non-trivial number of deaths are directly i would say linked to the prohibition with cannabis we could certainly get rid of a lot of the illicit trade and the criminal aspects of, um, of of this issue by legalizing cannabis taxing it it's not been an issue really where they've, where they've done this in america whether that would be the start of what you might call a slippery slope to legalizing other things i don't know i personally hope so i'd like to see more legalization in this area but yeah i mean cannabis is leading the way on other drugs you've got people often talk about portugal and they do seem to be pretty successful in decriminalizing all drugs uruguay is as well and again, that's very much rooted in this public health idea that we, we want to get people to treatment rather than into a uh, a police cell. The problem with decriminalisation is that you, you don't, you're not really getting rid of the criminal aspect of it whatsoever, nor are you getting rid of the adulteration and the, the lack of reliability of the products itself. But for, from the perspective of individual drug users, decriminalisation has been a success in a few places where it's been tried you you haven't seen a rocketing numbers of drug users and you've seen a lot of the harms associated with drug use decline i mean you've been talking about social decay 
for the people who are using these drugs, but obviously a lot of the despair comes from the trade itself. And, and you talk about the county lines and the children involved. What does the government's policy do to address that situation? Well, if you look at the policy, they promise they're going to close down 2,000 county lines, da 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 You know, they, they will talk Nixon style about this great war on drug dealers. That war will fail. I think the problem here is demand, it's not supply. Uh, I think that's been true in the various wars on drugs fought around the world. I remember listening to Tony Blair telling us that heroin would go down in Britain because 99% of it comes from Afghanistan, and he was all about to invade Afghanistan and shut it all down. You know, it simply moves around. This is what the um, this is what Sally Black says in her report that the drug supplies are incredibly innovative and resilient. You'd think, being an island, Britain would have somehow greater protection against um, drugs making their way into the country. But no, the dealers are incredibly rich, incredibly powerful. They're making £800 million profit a year. They've outwitted the police and will continue to do so. Now, I'm not saying there's not more that can be done on that. I just think it's um, it's futile and that until you address the demand for drugs then you're not really going to to solve the problem. I think that's, to be honest, I think that's where the war on drugs has been going wrong for a lot of the time. It's been seen, quite right, it is a criminal criminal enterprise. But you've seen this happen on a a civil level in Britain and also on a national level in, in countries like Mexico. The drugs trade has taken over the country. And all of the attempts to, to crack it down completely failed. So it was never that America was always wrong to think if it closes down Mexican supply, it's going to clean up American streets. The problem is in American hearts. The problem right now is in British lives. And that is a problem that we need to find a way of solving. Thank you, Fraser and Christopher. Just a quick interjection here. If you're enjoying this podcast, we have a host of other podcasts available, including Table Talk, which I host with Olivia Potts. It's released every two weeks, and we're always joined by an interesting guest who tells us all about their life through food and drink. All the links are available in the description. Next up, Britain has for a long time now been becoming more and more secular. This has meant that many churches that used to have full pews are at risk of turning into luxury flats or another Tesco Express. But in this week's Spectator, Tanjul Rashid highlights another destiny for these buildings, conversion into mosques. In the piece, he argues that it's better for these buildings to continue being a place of faith, even if that faith is not Christian. He joins me now along with Christopher Howes, the author of many a book on religious history and architecture. Tanjul, in this week's Spectator, you write about the phenomenon of churches being turned into mosques how prevalent is this in the uk well there's no there's no facts or figures on this so so all i have to go on is my own anecdotal experience of um visiting mosques throughout the country but i have to say it, it, i mean there's there are so many that i that i've been to in my time and certainly some of the most prominent mosques in london are housed in former mosques i mentioned in my piece that the essentially the spiritual heartland of of my own community uh, the bangladeshi community is centered on a um, a former 18th century huguenot chapel uh, which also used to house a, a synagogue and that's in east london and then if you go to west london Basically, the most 
sort of prominent uh, Sufi mosque in West London in Cricklewood is this uh, delightful mosque which has sort of adapted an onion shaped dome onto the onto the spire and and then if you go to South London as well uh, there's a mosque that that's now in what was formerly um, St Mark's Camberwell and that's and that's another sort of wonderful kind of Turkish mosque which retains some lovely stained glass windows of Jesus uh, in spite of the sort of prohibition on um iconography essentially in, in islam but um, th- that uh, that has been retained and and it's it's a very weird and lovely experience because you're sort of praying beneath a, a, a gothic vaulted ceiling and and gothic arches and it brings to mind uh, the, the the fact that really islam in britain has um has been going native you know for a long time and even now, uh, our places of worship are are sort of in the British kind of vernacular to some extent, and uh, that that was the the root of the piece, I would say. Christopher, is this a phenomenon that you are aware of? I was aware of it in Brick Lane, where the Huguenot Church became a synagogue and then became a mosque afterwards. And I think it's largely, surely, um, an urban phenomenon because that's where you get change of use. In, in Tangel's piece, which is fascinating stuff, uh, there's quite a complicated history behind the church in Ilford, which was really the heir to an independent chapel in Stepney. The independents were breakaways from the Church of England. And I think really that they were kind of the Wahhabis of Christianity because they hated images and any worship of saints or anything like that. I think it's probably easier where you have a building which is fundamentally a prayer hall, a place for people to go and see their, say their prayers and listen to the word of God. And that's transferable. I think there's a real difficulty, usually, where you have things like icons and altars, because even some Christians don't like icons of saints or altars. So... A fortiori, I would think there would usually be difficulty with this. I don't know about about Cricklewood um, or South South London, but certainly recently Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, which had been a museum for a long time, well, not a long time, in the 20th century, reverted to being a mosque. And there are some beautiful icons there which are not portable because they're in mosaic, and what's going to become of them? I, I'm sure they won't be torn down, but perhaps they'll be put behind curtains. It's it's interesting you mentioned that. I, I remember wondering about that at the time, and I looked into it, and I believe they've innovated some form of special lighting that or supposedly does the opposite of light and obscures the temporarily obscures the images at, at prayer time. But the eyes of here, I mentioned in the piece, because... It evokes those historic memories of uh, of conquest that essentially, you know, when a place was conquered by Muslims or by Christians that had formerly been of the other religion, the places of worship were converted. So uh, Hagia Sophia in Constantinople was converted into a mosque, just as the Mosque of Cordoba was converted into a cathedral. But uh, I have I have to say that in my experience of what's happening in this country, that doesn't seem to be part of the conversation, except among perhaps some extreme sort of far-right Christian 
types. There's been remarkably little opposition to the conversion of churches into mosques. And I think perhaps most Christians uh, essentially agree that it, with my point of view, which is that it, it would be a place of worship is better off being preserved as a place of worship, whether in the hands of Christians or Muslims or indeed Jews, because a number of churches have also become synagogues. I, I certainly think one of the saddest things is a church which has turned into a disco or supermarket or even a much unneeded coffee shop. Uh, I think that's really sad. And also, oddly enough, when churches are turned into museums, and this happens all over the place, but it, it means it's sort of dead. It's rather like a corpse, a dead body. I, I went all the way to Trebizond to see the towers on the Black Sea, which is in Turkey. And there's a I've Hagia there. Sophia. It's yeah, it's a Hagia Sophia there, which um, is not a mosque, but it's a museum. And you can see the old murals, which are marvellous, but it just hasn't got any atmosphere. There's no holiness. It's not a house of prayer. It's not a house of God anymore. Yes, that's, 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 that's interesting. I mean, on the Hagia Sophia question, I remember thinking about a lot at the time. Now, my preference would be that it should be restored as into a church. But there is something about this place that makes you think people should be using it for worship. And perhaps, you know, if it's Muslims, if it's Christians, uh, I, I'm not too fussed. Well, you're not, but I think a lot of people would be on both sides. I, I know that a lot of uh, Muslims would, would not be happy worshipping in a place with fi- figures of human beings, let alone of saints or of Jesus, who is a prophet of Islam. And I, I th- rather think that... Um, from the Christian point of view, people who don't just regard a church as a prayer hall but regard it as a covering for an altar might also find difficulty. There's a very interesting incident in a book by Laurie Lee where he's recounting his experiences in the Spanish Civil War, and they were billeted in an old in a church. Uh, he was on the Republican side. And out of daring or something, he slept on the altar as if it was a bed. And he said that ever afterwards, he'd felt a terrible feeling of shame about having done that. Now, it seems to me that if you're going to have a change of use for a a church with an altar, then you're almost destroying the altar, as it were. Tandra, do you think that's right, that it would be understandable if some Christians felt a little uncomfortable about churches being turned into mosques? I, I think it's it's uh, perfectly understandable that there should be some unease about that. And, 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 and I, I completely share that. As I, as I say, I would much rather every church remains a church and resounds with Christian worship, which Muslims are required to respect in the Quran. Christian worship is uh, is singled out for its sincerity and praised. And, uh, uh, but I don't think that church is being turned into a mosque is a destruction of the altar, as it were. I think it, 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 it perhaps you could call it a renovation of the altar to some extent. And it's a preservation of the sacredness, certainly. And if the choice is that a church should become, you know, a Tesco Express or a nightclub, which is actually very common now, churches being turned into nightclubs. I see it everywhere. There's one in, uh, there's one in Oxford that's quite, quite big. And uh, there's one, I think, by, is it near, near Euston Station, is there one, if I recall? 
Nightclubs, to some extent, seem less of a desecration than a Tesco Express. At least it, it's a place of gathering. <laughs> um, well, uh, there's quite a lot of gathering uh, at Tesco. Commu- I tell you another really unpleasant thing is when churches get turned into houses for executives. I saw one on a state agent site online, and they'd put a, another floor in along the nave. So even architecturally, it makes a nonsense of it. You're yeah. sitting there in your sitting room and you just see the top of the arches sort of sawn off. And every time you go to that house, you'll sort of be reminded that this church has seen the last of its real function and it's been reduced to some living quarters. Christopher, just to finish on, you've got a piece coming up in our Christmas issue, which is out next week, about the various charities that are coming to the rescue of dilapidated churches. What sorts of things are, are these charities doing to, to oh, preserve yes. them? Well, this is some... Um, the charity is called Friends of Friendless Churches. Well, they've got 58 or 60 churches in England and Wales, which nobody else wanted to look after. And I went to deepest Essex, not the Towie kind of Essex, and if it hadn't been for this small charity, the church would have fallen down, I think, frankly. This is St. Mary's Mundum, which is a lovely 14th century church with an extraordinary bell tower and a bell made in 1400 with the name Vincent, which is still hanging there and rings. So I can see that this is a very good thing to do, but there are 10,000 medieval churches in the care of the Church of England, and most of those are in the countryside. So... Most of them not really suitable for conversion to mosques or Tesco's or anything else. I'd much prefer them to be churches, and it's going to be uphill work unless we get more dedicated people like Friends of Friendless Churches. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful charity. I, I live not far from, from Essex, and I visited a, a number of these places. And whenever I, whenever I go, I, you know, I have in mind you know, the great Larkin poem, church going where he stumbles across a, a sort of dilapidated church and wonders you know what the use of it is and he asks in the poem i wonder who will be the last the very last to seek this place for what it was and uh, in my view it may well be muslims who will be the last the very last to seek out a church for what it what you know what what it, what it really was tangent and christopher thank you for joining The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And finally, lockdowns meant we all got used to working from home, which resulted in a much more casual dress code. But Jonathan Miller is worried that this may lead to the end of the necktie, a fashion accessory he believes is an important symbol of traditional masculinity. He joins me now to expand on that idea, along with fashion historian Dr Kimberly Crisman Campbell. Jonathan, in this week's issue, you lament the death of the necktie. What seems to have brought about its demise? Well, this was one of those pieces that I confess... I wrote the piece first and then did the research later. Like all good pieces. <laughs> but I, I guess it was a, a sort of generalised masculinist rage against the um, submissive surrender of men to the, uh, to the tides of, uh, of, uh, of, of wokeness. And I kind of trace the, uh, the death of the necktie a little bit to the... Uh, attack on on men and this great symbol of masculinity has been sort of cancelled 
And now I discover subsequently, I'm not the first person to have noticed this. And I also am informed by my daughter, who is very woke, that this piece was nothing but a misogynistic drivel. So anyway, <laughs> there it is. It's out there. Kimberly, what did you make of Jonathan's, Jonathan's piece? Do you, do you think the tie is a symbol of masculinity and therefore on the way out? Well, I wouldn't call it drivel, but I do take issue with the idea that the tie is inherently masculine. I mean, Mary Quant called it a public penis, but apart from the shape, I don't think there's anything inherently masculine about it, except its history as a male garment. Um, and the fact that it is, it is designed for a male body has never really worked on people with breasts. I do think, though, that the reports of the Thai's death are exaggerated. It's certainly in decline. The pandemic has certainly accelerated that decline. Uh, but people have been lamenting and predicting the death of the Thai for 100 years or more, and it's still with us. And there are reasons why it's still with us and will we'll stay with us, I think, for quite a while. Kimberly's actually written a great piece, which is much better than my own on the kind of history of the Thai. But I, I noticed that even though I hadn't had the benefit of reading her piece before I wrote my own. We, we both talk about the 19th, the Roaring Twenties, which of course occurred after the end of the great last global pandemic of the Spanish flu. And this caused a great revival in dandification and neckwear with the kipper tie, beloved of gangsters and, uh, and showmen. And so maybe there's a possibility that the, that the tie could come back. I think we also kind of noticed the similar Freudian explanations of the, t- of the tie. I'm looking at this, I just printed out from The Guardian, doing my research on the piece this afternoon, after it's already been written. The phallic necktie is an abs- outdated symbol of white male rule, echoed the shape of the male codpiece, um, and that uh, it is absolutely phallic, and that the uh, removal of the tie, the, 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 the cancellation of the tie, is a symbolic emasculation. And I, I guess I make this kind of uh, plea uh, that, that men should resist this and get back into ties, stand up for themselves and uh, hold their heads up high, and it is the ties that bind. <laughs> Kimberly, some, some would argue, though, that the tie and a suit and tie is a kind of great leveller because anyone can put it on. It doesn't matter what your background is, where you're from. You can put on a suit and a tie and, and everyone looks the same. Do you think we're sort of losing something if we, if we lose the tie, that actually it becomes more, dress codes become, in a way, kind of more complicated? Well, the, the suit and tie is an international male uniform and has been for centuries. And I think when men lament the death of the tie, in many cases, what they're lamenting is not a garment or masculinity itself, but the death of this international male uniform whose meanings they understood uh, both as wearers and observers, and perhaps a world that they no longer understand. Times are changing, ties are changing with them. Uh, This happened in the past though, it happened in the 20s, it happened in the 60s, it happened in the 90s with casual Fridays. And it's happening on a much larger scale in the age of COVID and Zoom meetings. Uh, I see no one's wearing a tie on this particular Zoom meeting that we're having. But there are also just as many men who welcome I'm not the even, death of I'm the tie. I'm not trousers, <laughs> <laughs> You don't need to for Zoom, do you? <laughs> I wasn't going to ask, but thank you for clarifying. 
Uh, many men today, younger men particularly, see the tie as uncomfortable or elitist or conformist. So uh, the uniform cuts both ways. It, it can be a symbol of group identity or it can be a symbol of conformity and, and control. I was struck, I've been watching old YouTube videos as part of my um, research for the article I already wrote. And uh, looking at old videos of, of London and from the late 19th century through the after the war and then the Second World War, and particularly even in the Second World War, in the height of the Second World War, everybody on the streets was wearing not just ties, but they were wearing hats, uh, women right. as well. And, uh, and people looked, they knew how to dress properly. And, uh, and possibly, you know, let's hope that from these very disturbed times in which we're living, that, uh, that something uh, very positive can come out in how we dress. Maybe it won't be manifested in, in neckwear, but I hope we can do better. I, I, Kimberly probably knows better than I do, but there isn't some kind of index that shows how skirt lengths respond to various... External yes, there's an index linking the economy to hemlines. It's been debunked, but it, it's a useful and, and convenient theory. Uh, but as you point out, the tie has outlasted the hat, the, the waistcoat, spats, many elements of menwear that have gone by the wayside. And, and that's because it does play an important role in society. It, as you say, lends authority. It, it signals social status, group identity, you know, wealth, individual style or fashionability, and even sexuality. So the, the tie conveys many messages. And I think that's why it's still with us after all these years and why we're still going to keep wearing it, perhaps not at the office, but for formal events in, in uh, situations where you know, dress codes are required. You mentioned dictators, which I thought was really funny because um, you know world leaders of all stripes wear, wear ties. I mean, Justin Trudeau wears ties, Macron wears ties. Dictators have historically favored uniforms. Macron only seems to have one tie, which is a black one. He looks like an undertaker. <laughs> but I notice it. I notice it. But, I, I can't disagree. But both Xi and Putin are very keen on their ties. And of course, there's a great phenomenon of the Donald Trump tie, which is somewhat uh, channeled by Boris Johnson of wearing your tie down to your knees practically yes and i mean i mean what is what is what is uh what is uh mr trump trying to tell us you know and What's and of course <laughs> boris's ties that they look like an unmade bed you know they're not properly knotted and they're down to his crotch i mean what are they thinking the smart nut guys i mean honestly well, a tie can also be very slimming, and I think in Trump's case, that's what he's going for, uh, creating a vertical line where perhaps it would not exist otherwise. <laughs> Kimberly, so. just to finish on, um, if ties aren't the kind of new, the kind of symbol of masculinity now, what 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 do men seem to be wearing that perhaps are kind of new signifiers of kind of masculinity? That's that's the problem. No one knows what to wear anymore. A uh, suit and tie is a, is a very convenient and easy uniform. Although you know, obviously there are nuances with which tie do you wear and which shirt and which pocket square. Uh, but but once that general rule goes out the window, I mean, the, the new dress code for the workplace and other uh, formal situations seems to be a collared shirt, whether or not it's open or closed, with or without a tie. Uh, we we now make a distinction between the collared shirt and the t-shirt. Uh, rather than the tie or no tie. Well, isn't it also possibly the case that that that, that dress is converging and that men? I mean, I mean, even with leaving the whole kind of trans um, 
cross-dressing thing out of it as a central issue, but men are dressing up as women, and women are dressing up as men, and it's a very kind of androgynous look. And I don't know whether quality fabrics and beautiful tailoring and, and wonderfully cut pairs of trousers may, may come back or not, but at the moment, men seem to have, uh, have basically given, given up everything um, for this kind of new uniform of chinos and open-neck shirts, and uh, women are doing whatever they want, and anywhere we're all at home, and it doesn't seem to matter. So who knows? Maybe we'll get a revival of the Roaring Twenties. I hope so. It'll lead to more fabulous stories by Kimball in the, in the Atlantic, that is for sure. But for the moment, my conclusion on the tie thing is that it kind of represents a kind of pathetic, abject surrender of this so-called all-powerful white male patriarchy, which turns out to... Uh, to run, hide, and surrender at the first sign of hostile fire. Well, I, I, I can't disagree with you in terms of uh, modern fashion, but I will say that people have been making those same arguments for a century or more. Uh, in the 60s, particularly, when the kipper tie was, was really uh, the thing to wear, uh, that, that's the time when women wore ties most regularly. Uh, because it is a very androgynous style. And you could say that women were going into the workplace and wearing ties, and therefore men backed away from the traditional tie. Or you could say that, that women were just jumping on the bandwagon with men because that was an accessible fashion to them. It's, it's, it's hard to... Um, well, it's easy to argue for it both ways. So I, I think we're both right. <laughs> <laughs> very diplomatic. Thank you, Jonathan and Kimberly, And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read all the pieces discussed. And if you become a subscriber today, you can get 12 weeks of the magazine for £12 delivered to your door along with a £20 Amazon gift card. I'm Laura Prendergast. Thank you for listening. And do join us again next week where we'll have our special Christmas edition.